according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, picking up where we left off Wednesday night, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. We're getting some details of things that we don't read about in Acts chapter 17, and yet uh, they clearly took place in Acts chapter 17 and Acts chapter 18, and uh, these details then become important for us in uh, combining all of Scripture together, Paul's epistles together with the book of Acts, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking God the Father to set aside our distractions and to humble us under the authority of his truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for the grace provision of this local church. We're thankful for the truth of your word, the privilege that we have to assemble before you, and the provision you've made. Father, you've given each one of us the permanent indwelling of your Holy Spirit, and we thank you for the teaching ministry of the Spirit that guides us in all things, even the deep things of God. So, Father, open our eyes this morning. Help us to keep the details straight and together and connected, and and bless this study, Father, that we might have a firm foundation upon which to proceed into the book of Philippians. I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, this is the uh, the pep talk, as we've called it. We've given it five different labels, I think. And uh, between the, the bulletin and the website and the audio recordings and, and my own printed notes, plus the screen, uh, I think there's a lot of variety in what we're calling this uh, this particular series. Um, but in any event, all of this is, is, is preview for the book of Philippians. And, and all the homework we do now is going to benefit us in all the prison epistles, in Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, and then the personal uh, letter to Philemon all written during times of, of the Apostle Paul's imprisonment. And so the background for this is, is, is vital, I think, because too many assumptions get made, in particular the traditional dating and the traditional place of authorship, uh, making Rome the origin of, uh, of these epistles. Uh, that, that would connect uh, Acts chapter 18 and the two years, or Acts chapter 28 and the two years that Paul spends in Rome with the composition of Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and so forth, uh, is, is a bit too late in, in my view. And I think that an earlier composition is more consistent with the overall picture that we get in the book of Acts, and in particular the connections that really can be made and should be made uh, with 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians uh, especially. Uh, I never realized this forever, you know, until recently, how uh, all the connections that are to be found between 2 Corinthians and Philippians. And uh, since we've recently been in 2 Corinthians, it's kind of fun to make those connections now and to see how the, the themes and the doctrines and the concepts link together uh, the way that they do. And so we're taking the time to do this. I don't know how much you know, longer it's going to take or how many sessions altogether. I think this is our fifth one here this morning. But as the case may be, I want to uh, plunge right back into it again. And so we're looking at a number of examples whereby uh, Luke omits details, that there are details not found by Luke in the book of Acts. And I'm calling these Luke's omissions and Paul's admissions, because the apostle Paul will admit to these things in his uh, letters, 
in the books that he wrote, also in the speeches that he makes that Luke records in the book of Acts. So strictly speaking, sometimes we're not just uh, contrasting Acts with 1 Thessalonians, for example. We're also contrasting Acts with Acts in some ways. Acts 18 with Acts 19, or Acts 19 with Acts 20. All right, Because there are some times that Paul is making a speech and he makes a speech and Luke writes that speech down and he writes down what Paul says and Paul gives details of things that Luke had failed to mention the chapter before when, when Luke was giving us the narrative of the, of the story, of, the, of the, the events as they took place. And so uh, well, we're going to highlight each one of these and, and hopefully be, be blessed in the process and realize that, uh, as always, there's going to be much more than we can possibly, uh, you know, we're going to keep having questions that may never be answered, but it's good to, uh, to pursue these in, uh, in any event. So in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, we're talking about the second missionary journey, uh, which we're giving to you as a point of study here, uh, simply labeling it example number 8 of all the examples we're going through. Example number 8 is the second missionary journey, and this one contains you know, four or five different omissions uh, just within this one example. Uh, the switch to, from the they narrative to the we narrative we've talked about when, when Luke includes himself in the storyline, when the, the, the text in the book of Acts switches from we to they and back and forth from they to we in the, in the story here. The imprisonment in Philippi, the first uh, recorded imprisonment is here in, in Acts chapter 16 in Philippi on the second missionary journey. The 18 months that he spent in Corinth. You can read through the, the details there in Acts 18 and nowhere in the text there does it say, oh, by the way, it was during this time that he wrote 1 Thessalonians and then he wrote 2 Thessalonians. It's part of the, uh, the details that we have to put together when we, when we compare all these things. And so looking now at 1 Thessalonians, we see some details in chapter 3. He says, therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. And so there's details here that aren't found when you're reading through the the narrative of Acts 17 and you're reading through uh, the details that are to be found there. In some cases it helps if you have a map to look at or you have a chart or a diagram. And as as you're working through this, you realize, let me get my pointer out, that... um, they reached Troas here, and this is where, because all these other doors had been closed, they reached Troas there, and uh, not knowing where to go next until Paul receives a vision. And the Lord says, uh, you need to be in Macedonia. And there's a vision that he has. A man is calling him to Macedonia. And so he comes, they get on a boat, and this is where the we narrative begins, by the way. Luke joins them at this point. The author of the book of Acts joins them at this point, and so everything now becomes a we narrative. And they sail across to Philippi, and you can read about this in Acts 16, and uh, this is where Paul and and Silas are going to spend a night in jail, all right, and they have some conflict there. And so many patterns happen there, for example. Paul will bring up his Roman citizenship. That next morning he says, hey, look, you, you beat me and put me in jail here without a trial, and that's not lawful to do as a Roman citizen. 
all right, which got everybody scared, okay? All the officials uh, knew that they were in trouble at that point, and, uh, and they wanted to just release him quietly, and, and, and he said, no, you come down here and you release me yourself because you put me in here illegally as a Roman citizen that this should not have happened. And so we have a pattern there that's going to come up again and again and again. Paul's Roman citizenship becomes a factor, and as I believe it's a factor in Corinth, when he stands in a bema seat in front of the proconsul there, when he stands in front of Gallio, it's going to happen in Jerusalem and in Caesarea when he stands trial there. And ultimately he has to appeal to Caesar. And a right and a privilege that he has that he could have exercised even earlier than Jerusalem. That appeal to Caesar, he could have made that in Philippi, could have made that in Thessalonica, could have made that in, in Corinth, could have made that in Ephesus. And much of what we're going to study in the upcoming classes is going to center in Ephesus and uh, the omissions that are, that are uh, not to be found in, uh, in Acts 18 and Acts 19 that uh, we have to read between the lines to find out that he was imprisoned in Ephesus. He was thrown to the lions. All right, And, Qu- and uh, Priscilla and Aquila risked their lives. They risked their necks to save him. Uh, while he was in Ephesus. And, and those are details that we have to put together with all these other clues that we have. And so as we're reading through here, they traveled from Philippi to Thessalonica to Berea to Athens. And as we follow the narrative in the book of Acts, it's, it's slightly different than the, the confession that's made here, the admission that's made here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Uh, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. All right, well, Who's the we if Paul's alone and, and what else is happening here? Uh, where's Timothy being sent and what's happening to Silas? And so when we combine uh, Acts 17 with, with 1 Thessalonians 3, I think we get this full picture. Because in Thessalonica, they, uh, they tried to arrest Paul, couldn't find him, right? Paul does a lot of hide and seek in some of these missionary journeys. And they end up taking uh, uh, a fellow named Jason, who owned the home where they were meeting and a fellow they could identify and they arrested him and they brought him in to answer and he had to put some money forward. He laid down a deposit, uh, which I call the anti-bail to get him out of town and uh, to promise that he wasn't coming back. And, uh, and, then, they, and then they departed. So uh, Paul and, so, and Silvanus and Timothy all departed. They came here to Berea, the three of them came here to Berea. Luke, by the way, stayed behind at Philippi because that's where the we language disappears. So uh, Luke stays behind at Philippi, and then Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy come down here to Berea, right? And then when we're reading Acts, there's more trouble there. They put Paul on a boat. They put Paul on a boat, and he comes down here to Athens by himself, while Silvanus and Timothy are up here at Berea still. And the plan was, the plan was that Silvanus and Timothy would follow him to Athens when they could, all right? That's the plan. Now, do you ever make a plan and then change it later? <laughs> All right. And in some cases, it's helpful for us that we have uh, text messages, <laughs> right? Email, chat, things like that. Uh, not so in the ancient world. All right. Word traveled pretty slow, and 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 in order for a message to get from one place to the next place, somebody had to physically travel to carry that uh, that scroll or that letter or whatever the case may be. Just a, a verbal message still required the person to travel, right? And so, um, again, reading here in 1 Thessalonians 3, we 
thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, uh, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. And so I look at the term afflictions there in verse 3, and I realize there's a lot more that Luke didn't tell us in Acts 17 about what about what happened here that drove them to here, what happened here that put Paul in a boat to go here, what continued to happen here to, to Silas and to Timothy. And so rather than joining him immediately in Athens, they changed their mind. And we, Paul and Silvanus said, let's send Timothy back to Thessalonica. So Timothy comes back here by himself to Thessalonica. All right, did we have a question on that? Can we get a microphone, please, Chris? Mm-hmm. Oh, right. Oh yeah, they would have, they would be able to identify themselves as such, and the, the the records of citizenship would be kept first of all in Rome, and then likely local provinces would have their own their own copies as well. In some cases, if there was a, a question of a dispute, they would have to investigate it. It could be resolved in in fairly short order. Uh, also, the penalty for posing as a Roman when you weren't a Roman was pretty harsh. <laughs> so the idea of just passing yourself off as a citizen, if it was then proved that you weren't. Uh, was going to be a horrendous uh, a flogging or a beating or a crucifixion or something of that nature. So that wouldn't uh, that would not be taken lightly. Absolutely. Chris, do you have the microphone back there? All right, we're going to want to make sure we use that for additional questions. All right. <clears throat> so the details are to be found here when it says afflictions. Uh, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. Uh, Verse 4, indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, as you know. And uh, so we have the details here of a training ministry. Timothy is sent back to Thessalonica. He's probably 10 years old, 11, 12 years old at this point. But Paul uses him, and he's able to go in there, and he's able to teach. And the blessing that he provides is, is extraordinary in this. Anyway, so we have the details there. We went into much more uh, detail on this on Wednesday, so if you missed that, I encourage you to get the MP3 and get uh, get caught up on that. Other things, uh, the weakness and fear and a much trembling that's spoken of in 1 Corinthians 2.3. There's no indication of that in Acts 18 when Paul arrives in Corinth. Also, the vow that he takes. Why did he take a vow? A vow for what? To do what? For how long? Uh, all we're told, though, is about the haircut that he had. Uh, either when the vow was over or the beginning of the vow, even that's not clear. I think if it was a Nazarite vow, he, he, then that meant he was touching no dead bodies, he was not consuming alcohol, he was not cutting his hair for the length of that vow. And so in Sincrea, when he had his hair cut, I tend to read that as, as, well, that was the end of his vow. That was concluding the, the vow season of whatever length and uh, for details that, that Luke chose not to tell us about. All right. I'm going to move on this morning and start to talk now about this third missionary journey because this is the the longest of all the sections and this is where there are more hints 
scattered throughout the epistles and and less stated in uh, in these chapters from chapter 19 to chapter 20 um, we have a fair amount that is said but much more that's not said and uh, whereas in Corinth he was there for a year and a half and we had plenty of things that, that we realized took place here he was three years and there were books of the Bible written there were journeys that were taken there were uh, a number of other things that happened and uh, we need to be aware of those things otherwise I think we have an incomplete picture of Paul's ministry, the men that he trained, and um, I think some of the reasons why maybe a guy like Demas would uh, would would bail uh, is that he loved this present present age and he departed and gave up the training ministry and went off to live uh, the good life uh, in in Thessalonica. We're told so uh, some of those details I think come into view also, and so let's go over now to the book of Acts and let's look at the end of chapter eighteen, first part of chapter nineteen. And depending on who you're reading, some people will outline the third missionary journey in different ways. And depending on what Bible you're reading, they'll put a pericope heading in different places. <laughs> okay, I think the relocation from Antioch to, uh, to Ephesus is, is important to recognize, not necessarily as a part of the missionary journey, but as uh, a relocation of, of the headquarters that he is setting up a headquarters in, in Ephesus that's going to become the base for future journeys, right? Similar to what he did in Antioch. Two missionary journeys were launched in Antioch, and you'll notice they started there and they ended there. It was always the pattern that he would return to the sending local church in order to report in, in order to give the, uh, the testimonies, the reports, the blessings, to give an account, I imagine, for the, for the funds that were raised and other, other uh, aspects of, of sending forth missionaries. And so when you're doing your map work and you see how the first missionary journey is a loop beginning and ending at, at Antioch, the second missionary journey is a loop beginning and ending at Antioch, the third missionary is a loop, uh, journey is a loop, almost, basically, beginning and ending at Ephesus, but with uh, kind of cheating on the, the end of that loop. Because he doesn't want to get arrested again in Ephesus. He doesn't want to get delayed again in Ephesus. Uh, he actually stays at Miletus and calls for the elders to come to him. And he gives his final report there and even gives his farewell message there because he, he doesn't believe he's ever going to see their face again. He's getting on a boat. He's going to go to Jerusalem and he, uh, he's not sure what awaits him after that. So those are some of the details that we'll see at this point. But I think the relocation of the... Um, of the headquarters is important. So um, here at the end of, of uh, Acts 18, I think uh, you'll note that uh, they depart. Um, let me see here. So verse 18 uh, is where he gets on the boat at St. Korea, had his haircut, he was keeping a vow. They came to Ephesus and he left them there. This is where he drops off Priscilla and Aquila. He leaves them at Ephesus in Acts 18, 19. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent. That just blows the mind, doesn't it? You think here's for the first time, Paul's got a positive reception at a synagogue. You know, I mean, he'd be licking his chops on, at something like that in any other town he'd gotten to. Usually he speaks in the synagogue and they, they drive him off and then he turns to the Gentiles. Here he gets a positive response. They say, can you come back? And, but taking uh, leave of them and saying, I will return to you again, if God wills, 
and he set sail from Ephesus, all right? And uh, it's curious to me, another omission by Luke. Why was he in such a hurry? Why would he not stay there? Why would he not pursue the positive volition that was presented before him? And, uh, and yet we don't get those details here. I think we can get some hints elsewhere as Paul uh, reflects back. Uh, so when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. All right, so close of the second missionary journey. Again, Antioch was the headquarters. They departed from Antioch, uh, and, and it would, the journey would end when he reports back to the church at Antioch. And then the transition. Having spent some time there, he left and passed successively through the Galatian region and, and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So in, in Acts 18.23, we have... Uh, the details then about how this leg right here, how he travels by land and he finally gets back to Ephesus like he'd hoped. And this is not necessarily missionary journey number three. I don't think of it that way. I think of it as the, the relocation of, of the headquarters, that he's now going to set up his headquarters in Ephesus rather than Antioch. And he's going to set up more of his focus branching out of Ephesus and moving further, further west from there. All right. Some of these clues, by the way, we get in later epistles. Uh, Paul speaks of it in 2 Corinthians, how uh, he would love to have Corinth become a missionary headquarters and he can branch out to regions west of there. He wants to make it to Rome. He would love for Rome to become a missionary headquarters. And from Rome, he'll be able to, to, to send teams into Spain and regions beyond. So this seems to be his, uh, his modus operandi, as we talk about it, setting up now his headquarters at Ephesus, setting up a logistical base and ministry training center. Now we have to leave Paul, the glimpse that we have of him in verse 23, we don't uh, get back to Paul again until chapter 19 and verse 1. And what's interesting in the meantime is the interaction between Aquila and Priscilla and the blessing they're able to provide for Apollos, who's introduced in, uh, in those final verses there of uh, of chapter 18 verses 24 through 28 and paul's out of the picture as that happens see and 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 i find that curious i find that most uh, interesting to see that dynamic between paul and barnabas when they're or paul and apollos when they're not face to face and uh, what might have happened had paul been there see i think i think the lord is just so faithful to, to guide and direct these things to keep uh, to keep these conflicts from happening it could have been another paul barnabas moment See, but it wasn't. Instead, Aquila and Priscilla had the blessings to be able to, you know, straighten out some doctrinal issues and correct uh, uh, Apollos on some of the limitations because he, he was not, not aware of the baptism of Christ. The only baptism he knew about was the baptism of John. And so uh, he needed a slight adjustment to, to the information he was, he was aware of. And uh, Aquila and Priscilla were able to uh, provide that for him. <coughs> All right, well, now we get to Ephesus, and we've got to see everything now that happens here. So um, in chapter 19, that it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, in the meantime, before Paul arrives, uh, Apollos gets on the boat and sails across to Corinth. And, and if you're not aware of this, by the way, this, this is huge shipping territory, right? And Apollos, uh, uh, Ephesus was a, was a huge economic center. Corinth was a huge economic center. So there was a lot of commerce that passed back and forth, the boats that were sailing every day. And if anyone wanted to book passage, uh, you're going to find a boat either at Ephesus or at Troas sailing across to Philippi. These routes were very well uh, traveled. 
especially because the storms were terrible down in here. Uh, so the sailors would avoid that part of the, of the, of the uh, Mediterranean Sea. And instead, uh, the pattern was to land at Corinth and cart the uh, goods across to the other side of the isthmus and then sail out that way to go to Italy. And that was, that was where you know, so much uh, of cargo passed through Corinth. Corinth became the richest city in the area because everything was passing through. Anyway, this becomes uh, important to understand because we have clues in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians that Paul made a, a, uh, a sorrowful visit to Corinth during the three years he was living in Ephesus, that he actually visited them on an occasion, and it was a, it was a train wreck. Uh, he broke their heart, they broke his heart, it was a sorrowful visit. He goes back to Ephesus, and he starts to write a letter to them saying, I'm never going to do that again. <laughs> All right, when I come to you the third time, it will not be in sorrow. It may be in anger, and it may be in, in divine judgment. <laughs> it may be, uh, may be coming with a rod, but he says, I will not come to you in sorrow again. And those are details that we pick up on. We, we studied it in our Second Corinthians series, and it's going to come back again here to, uh, to get these details. All right. <clears throat> when you read 41 verses of Acts 19... You're going to learn a lot. There's a lot of things that happen while he's in Ephesus. And uh, we can kind of skim through, see six items that are here on this slide. We kind of skim through and get some details and more. There's actually a lot said in this chapter that's said without explanation that cause us to, to raise our hands and, and ask questions. All right, so uh, let's take a look at it. Uh, it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country, came to Ephesus, and found some disciples. And uh, you think, great, you know, who was the teacher here before me? And what kind of a great foundation did he lead? And, and this, my job is going to be easier if he taught him real well. And uh, he said to them, uh, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, uh, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> All right, well then... Um, you learn kind of quickly that, you know, the, the former Bible teacher who was here probably, uh, you know, either he didn't know himself or, or there were, there were gaps in his understanding. Let's, uh, let's go back to basics. Let's, uh, let's lay these things down again. Let's make sure you're solid on, on what we're teaching here. So he said to them, well, then into what were you baptized? And they said into John's baptism. Oh, okay. And so we realized that far more, that there was more to the story than just Aquila and Priscilla trying to fix Apollos' doctrine. I mean, that's fine and dandy, and I'm glad they did that. But there's other things as well. There's the effects of that. There's the students that Apollos had taught. There's, there's this, this group of disciples that had gone forth, and they're still operating under those, those bad assumptions. They only knew about John's baptism. So Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And so when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. In other words, it's a dispensational issue. That they're Old Testament believers that still are under the assumption that Jesus is coming. That the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That they have to uh, uh, engage in John's baptism, uh, repenting of their sins, confessing their sins, and preparing themselves for this imminent kingdom that the king is bringing in. And Paul had to correct their doctrine to say, no, wait a minute. <laughs> yes, that's what John's baptism was all about, but um, newsflash, uh, we crucified the Christ. 
And uh, it's going to be a while until the kingdom gets here, right? Because Jesus has now ascended to sit at the Father's right hand. And we're now in a whole new stewardship. We're now in a, in a new age in which there is no Jew or Gentile, in which there is no uh, male or female, in which we're one body in Christ. And so there are new realities that have to be communicated. And an Old Testament believer that only received John's baptism, that never received, that doesn't understand what the church age is all about, they have to be crossed into the church. See, sometimes I call it a matriculation. They have to be matriculated from being an Old Testament believer to a New Testament believer. And so this is what happens here. And so when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Okay? They don't have to get saved again. You can't get saved a second time. They're already saved. They don't have to believe. They just have to repent. They have to have a change of thinking as to who Jesus is. And they have to confess Jesus as the Christ. And they have to be baptized uh, to identify with the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. And in these acts of faith, then, they are ushered into the, into the New Testament. And they, they matriculate into the, into the body of Christ. And the apostles lay hands on them. They receive the Holy Spirit, right? It's just the remedial process for things that we take for granted. Because you and I got saved in the church age, right? I got saved in September of 1973. And at the moment of my salvation, just like the moment of your salvation, from that moment when you believed in Jesus, you got God the Holy Spirit, all right? The permanent indwelling was yours from the day you were saved. And uh, we don't have to deal with these, uh, no, nobody today has to be transitioned from a, an Old Testament believer to a New Testament believer, all right? So as long as we're clear on that, so many of these passages make sense. That's why you get these verses in, in Acts, by the way, that say, you know, repent and be baptized. Uh, and, and if you try to adapt that to a, a church-age gospel message, uh, that's, that's bad news, right? Don't do that, you know, don't, don't walk up to somebody on the street and tell them to repent and be baptized. Tell them to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That's the gospel message we need to be preaching today. All right. And you'll notice verse 6, when Paul laid hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came to them. They began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And these, again, were some of the signs of the, in the early church whereby uh, the evidence of this was, was uh, validated as to their transition now from being an Old Testament believer to a New Testament believer. So there were all in all about 12 men. <clears throat> then verse 8, so he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. <coughs> Excuse me. All right, so we have details here. Three months of synagogue reasoning and persuading. Notice that's not evangelizing. That's reasoning and persuading. That's talking to, to, to Jews with an Old Testament foundation, many of whom, maybe most of whom, or however many, are actually born again, but they're still Old Testament believers, saved prior to the, to the death of Christ on the cross. And uh, they need to be reasoned with and persuaded that the coming Messiah they've been believing in is the Christ who came and who died and who rose again. However, after about three months, <laughs> okay, some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people. So he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And so now we have a, a change of focus in Paul's ministry. And so he, he takes away the disciples, those uh, believers and those disciples there in the synagogues that are willing to, to uh, adapt to the new New Testament realities. And they find another venue. 
in which they can meet. Okay, and and here we have something interesting too because early on they were just meeting in homes, and homes were tended to be the the common place of meeting. And here we have an indication that sometimes. Uh, the number of believers were too great to meet in a home, and maybe you needed a larger venue. Maybe you needed a school. You needed a, uh, you know, a, another a, an auditorium of some sort. You needed a public space that was available for a, a larger church uh, gathering. So uh, we have it there. Some people today will uh, actually insist that uh, that what we do here is wrong, that we shouldn't own a building and we shouldn't pay a professional clergy type pastor. We should, we should go back to the first century and just meet in homes and do everything on a, on a primitive basis because that's what they did in, in Acts chapter 2. And uh, well, you know, there is progression in the scriptures and there is uh, patterns for different things. Anyway, uh, I think the, the reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus is interesting. So this took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now we pay attention to these time references, the three-month reference, the two-year reference, the little while longer reference, okay? And then uh, we get some hindsight given in chapter 20 where he says, for three years, night and day, I did not cease from preaching to you and uh, speaking to you publicly and from house to house. And so we can kind of combine all those references and then realize that three months plus two years plus a little while longer ballpark is roughly three years depending on how you count three years and and uh and whatever else but these details then i think we can uh, put together pretty well all right so the time in tyrannus the school of tyrannus was for two years okay beyond that they no longer had access to the school of tyrannus why why did that stop did the school officials get mad? Was there conflict? Were people arrested? Did he spend time in jail? Were there other riots taking place? No small disturbance arose? Uh, is that, is that uh, the final straw? Because previous to that had been some smaller disturbances? Uh, when was it that he was thrown to the lions? Okay, We have clues. Uh, we don't have a strict timeline, but these things, uh, I think, uh, have, have to be considered. Look at the description, though. Verse 10, all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And that's a powerful statement. And, and we can take it specifically, we can take it generally, we can take it, some people would take it as hyperbole, but however we take it, it is a significant statement, all right? All who lived in Asia, what was the population of Asia at that time? We're talking about the Roman province of Asia. We're not talking about the continent. The Roman province of Asia in, in, in western Turkey, all right? Ephesus was the capital and all these other cities around. All who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Imagine the impact if Austin Bible Church had the impact that Ephesus had. So that we would say, everybody in Texas heard the word of the Lord because of the, the thriving ministry at Austin Bible Church. That's a powerful statement. You know what that means? And they didn't have MP3s and websites and email and Twitter and, you know, all the ways to reach out and communicate. To reach out and communicate required people reaching out and communicating, right? Feet walking from place to place. Letters being written. Word getting around. Friends and enemies alike spreading that word around, okay? And uh, that's an extraordinary statement. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body 
to the sick. And the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. Now, I have more questions about that verse too. Like, excuse me, Luke, can you give us more? More details, please? Um, why were they carrying things from Paul's body? Was Paul not ambulatory for certain portions of these three years? Uh, not just carrying them from him, but carrying from his body. Was he, was he infirm for a time? Was he sick for a time? Was he on the verge of death for a time? There were different sicknesses going around. Epaphroditus was sick to the point of death. What, what exactly was it that was going around? Did he have some imprisonments taking place? whereby they were carrying articles from him to different places. More questions than answers at this point, but these are clues that we want to combine with the other indicators and get some ideas. All right. Uh, Verses 13 and following then. um, One of the funniest passages in the whole Bible. (laughs) Um, Don't try this at home. Sometimes you get the, the little lawyer label at the bottom of the commercial that says, you know, do not attempt. This is a professional stunt driver on a closed course. Do not attempt. Um, so there's some Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempting to name over those who had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. You know, it's curious, you know, what their exorcism was like before they came across this name Jesus. Um, what Old Testament background do they have? What rabbinic traditions do they follow? What uh, mystic procedures did they have for Jewish exorcism? Uh, here they thought that naming the name of Jesus would act like a spell, would act like a, uh, you know magic words. You know, it's silly. It's like when they thought, hey, let's just take the Ark of the Covenant into the battle. We can't lose. You know, well, yeah, you can lose, and you're going to lose the Ark of the Covenant while you're at it. The Philistines are going to capture it. Because God does not work like, you know, like a genie in a bottle or like we can't name his name like a magic spell or something. And so there's seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, and they were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, I've heard of him, but who are you, right? Just who do you think you are? And, uh, the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued them all and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now what a battle must that have been. This one demoniac beats up all seven of these guys and um, rips off their clothes and whatever else and out they go. And so this also became known to both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus and fear fell upon them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. And so there's other things that are happening. Remember, a lot of things can happen in three years. Things that aren't being recorded in 41 verses of of this chapter. Also, many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. Many of those who practiced magic brought their uh, books together, began burning them in the sight of everyone. They counted up the price of them and found 50,000 pieces of silver. That's a huge amount. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. There's another summary statement. And if that's an intensification of the earlier summary statement, I'm I'm left amazed, see, because already everybody in Asia has heard the word of the Lord. And now it's growing mightily and prevailing, okay? During such time, churches are being planted. The church at Colossae gets planted, all right? 
uh, Philemon gets saved. How many other things are happening here that we don't know in this chapter, but we read about in other parts of the Bible? The epistles of Paul. So, uh, what we do know, Luke's narrative includes the following. Three months of synagogue reasoning, Jewish public hostility, two years of daily reasoning in the school of Tyrannus, many miracles by Paul or by proxy, via his clothing. Um, and, and you wonder, is this, is this kind of, because there were so many other legends that, that got written about in apocryphal stories, and there were so many other fantasies that were dreamed about. In the Middle Ages, it got insane. Uh, early Christians were all buggy about uh, different uh, relics. They would get all excited if there was a piece of the cross or the bone of an apostle or the tooth of somebody. And, and, and so um, they would spread these things all over the place. Martin Luther would mock them uh, ceaselessly because he felt that there were enough bones to rebuild, you know, not just the dozen apostles, but, you know, there were enough pieces of the cross to build, you know, different things. Luther was pretty, pretty uh, sarcastic in that. But uh, probably because of this story here, oh, you can take a handkerchief from the apostle Paul and carry it across town and, and heal somebody? And so this really happened, but how many... Uh, Legends then got built uh, wrongly in, uh, over the years. Tremendous success and fame is credited during this time. And you read these summary statements and, and you realize there was a, a monster impact that was happening here. Now, as this was thriving, we already see the hostility started in verse 9 on the part of the Jews. Can we imagine that it stopped? Can we imagine that it lessened? Or can we imagine that it got worse and worse and worse and worse? Okay? We don't have to imagine. Because Luke doesn't tell us this, but plenty of other places in Paul's writing, we find out that the Jewish opposition increased and increased and increased and increased. And like they did in Philippi, like they did in Thessalonica, like they did in Corinth, like they uh, are going to do in Jerusalem, if they get the chance to bring the politicians in, to get the Romans on their side, and to have a a troublemaker arrested on some trumped-up charge, they do it. They do it every chance they can. And and, and they they will testify whatever lies they need to to convict whoever they need to convict. And if that doesn't work, then they'll ambush them on the way to trial and and take care of it that way. And so the idea that in Ephesus they didn't try the same thing is, uh, is unthinkable. They must have brought Paul before the proconsul. They must have brought Paul before the, the Roman authority. It's the capital of the province. There is a proconsul there that answers to the Senate, the Roman Senate. There's also a, Roman, there's also a, a representative of Caesar there that answers to Caesar. And uh, they had, it was a senatorial province so the proconsul answered to the Senate. But Caesar also had a representative there looking after his personal interests. And so there are two political factions there that represent the Romans. Plus there's the Asiarchs. Plus there's a city a clerk. There's a lot of uh, political figure, uh, figures we have to understand here in this chapter. All right. <clears throat> so... Down to uh, verse 21. There is a designed departure. And then there's a change of plans. 
<laughs> okay? There's a designed departure, and then something else happens. Common in Paul's travels. So after these things, I'm reading from Acts 19.21, after these things were finished, Paul purposed in his spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And uh, so this is the planned itinerary then that he intends to travel. He is going to leave Ephesus. He's going to travel through Macedonia and Achaia, drop into Jerusalem, and then off to Rome. That's the plan. He writes about it in 1 Corinthians. He writes about it in 2 Corinthians. A couple times he changes his mind, and that's why Corinth thought he was wishy-washy. At one point he was going to go this way, and then this way, and then to Rome. But he changed his mind. Um, And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. How long is that? (laughs) Okay. And what else happened while he was there? Again, it's... uh, not clear. We have uh, more questions than answers. We're not in a we portion of the text, so Luke isn't here at the moment. And he's sending Timothy away, right? Um, sending into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him. So they're going as an advanced party. He himself intends to go through Macedonia and then Achaia and then Jerusalem. So he's sending these two ahead of him, preparing things for when he arrives there. This is also one of his patterns. If he can, send uh, Send agents ahead of him to arrange details. Notice it's Timothy and Erastus, not Erastus and Timothy. Timothy's in charge. Now he has a partner. He has an assistant. Um, Not clear if that's the same Erastus that later becomes the treasurer in Corinth or not. Uh, Fairly common name, maybe different people. Uh, But Timothy is leading, uh, leading that team. So he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. (laughs) And so for the rest of the chapter now, we're going to be centered on this no small disturbance. And uh, the verses that follow, in fact, it's the bulk of the chapter. It's from this verse down to the end. And then uh, you get into chapter 20 after the uproar had ceased. uh, Paul has to uh, take his leave and, and go to Macedonia. So he's able to exit stage left when we get to uh chapter 20 and verse 1 and the uh the the riot the no small disturbance the the uh the conflict that happens here remarkably enough is um does not result in paul being jailed it results of in two other associates being jailed paul goes back into hiding he does that hide and seek routine again like he did in thessalonica like he's done in other places where he himself stays out of sight and other people pay a price Okay. He often talks about his fellow prisoners. He talks about those who risk their neck. He talks about others that have sacrificed on his behalf. And uh, I'm curious as to how many of these fellow prisoners uh, weren't literally in a cell with him, but they went to jail instead of him because they covered for him. That uh, they helped him hide and they themselves uh, paid the price. I think a lot of his fellow prisoners were likely uh, in those circumstances. So, um, we center on Demetrius, Acts 19.24, uh, a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, 
who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. So it's no small disturbance and no little business. Kind of interesting way that Luke writes. All right. Ephesus is the headquarters for this temple. It's the, it's the big moneymaker in town. And the people come from all over the place to worship here. And, uh, and, and they get there, you know, just like Disneyland, you, you can't leave until you pass through the souvenir shop. And uh, they get you with these little silver idols that you take with you so that you can, uh, through the little idol, you can take that back home. And through that, you can, you know, reach this temple here, theoretically. I mean, that's the myth. And, uh, and, and so forth. Well, this business is suffering because uh, of Paul's teaching. And um, so Demetrius gathers uh, these workmen of similar trades and said, men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. (laughs) Okay, imagine that. But this is the testimony of an unbeliever giving evidence as to how fruitful and effective this Ephesus ministry has been for the last three years and the impact that it's happening. And, and, you know, unbelievers don't mind. You can believe whatever you want to believe and whatever. That's quaint. That's cute. Until it starts to hurt their, their pocketbook. And then all of a sudden, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute. Right? And uh, I think we see this here. And so there's a danger here. Uh, that this trade of ours fall into disrepute. Also, the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. And so, uh, and you can imagine, this is, this is a problem. And if there's competition, you know, you're in, you know Artemis has uh, certain things uh, that, that, that make it worthwhile to come, but, you know, on the other side is Aphrodite over there in Corinth, and she's got certain things that make that attractive. And, and, and so there's competition between goddesses and temples and dollars, you know, denarius that get spent as pilgrims make their journeys. And so uh, this is a problem, and they, they know the solution to the problem is just to get rid of it, kill Paul. So when they heard this and were filled with rage, they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the city was filled with a confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. All right? We don't know a whole lot about this Gaius. There's tons of Gaiuses. It's a very common name. Um, But Aristarchus we we know very well uh, from other correspondence. And... um, Different aspects there. We'll see him uh, getting on a boat when Paul's on his way to to go to Rome. All right. So they arrest two, but they don't arrest Paul. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. (laughs) Right? He's going to go charging on in there and probably, you know, utter some great, brilliant, legalistic argument and theology and some kind of thing. And and, and his, his... uh, church members here, his deacons are holding him back, saying, uh, no, Paul, that's not going to work. <laughs> All right. So they stash him away. Also, some of the Asiarchs. Now, man, here's a... here's a. you got to understand that it's a, it's a senatorial province, so there's Roman officials that answer to the Senate. There's a proconsul that answers to the Senate. 
There's also a, uh, a magistrate that answers to Caesar that, that handles his issues. Uh, these Asiarchs are native Greeks that are the, uh, the ruling uh, uh, group of Greeks here. Um, you got to understand who they are. This, this was misunderstood for a long, long time. And in fact, it was uh, mocked for some time until archaeology and historians finally caught up to Luke and realized Luke knew what he was talking about. And it's actually a tremendous testimony to the authenticity of, uh, of the book of Acts related to these uh, Greek officials, these native Greek officials here in, uh, in Ephesus. And notice they're friends of Paul's. And uh, so they send to him, and they repeatedly urge him not to venture into the theater. They're tipping him off into some of the plots against him. And we're told there were multiple plots. So then um, some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. You ever do that? You throw a mob, and no one exactly knows why they're there, but, you know, as long as they're there, let's go ahead and do some damage. Does this remind you, too, of the trials of Jesus? Because they brought so many accusers in and those accusers couldn't keep their story straight. And, and it was frustrating to the, to the Sanhedrin when they were trying to get a conviction and the, and the, the witness testimony was all uh, confused. So uh, some of the crowd included, uh, concluded, I'm sorry, concluded that it was Alexander. That's the one that uh, was causing all this trouble. And here's a name that's just mentioned out of nowhere. And you're reading the book of Acts and you're saying, excuse me, Who's this Alexander guy you're talking about? Another omission on Luke's part by introducing Alexander and not giving us the background. Since the Jews had previously put him forward and having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. And so why is he the mouthpiece? Why is he the spokesman? You know, the, the, the Jews are intent on... on and, and why did they get... How did the Jews get involved in this? I thought it was the silversmiths. Wait a minute. Who was provoking the silversmiths? Now we're starting to figure it out. It's the Jewish opponents that were provoking the silversmiths that had this Alexander guy as a mouthpiece that were coordinating all these these riots. They're the ones that are causing all this. And, And so Alexander intends to make a defense to the assembly. But when they re- recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them, as, uh, from them all as they shouted for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. All right? <laughs> so whip them up. And the longer they get whipped up into a frenzy, is it going to get any better? No. This, this will not end well. Okay? The longer they, they keep whipping up the fervor, the longer they keep whipping up the mob, it's, uh, it's not going to end well. So after quieting the crowd, so yeah, here they are shouting about, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So after quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, and this guy's a real hero. I, I want to meet this guy someday. I hope he's saved. Men of Ephesus, what man is there, after all, who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guarded, is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? All right? So quit carrying on about it. (laughs) You don't need to keep shouting it. We get it, all right? Ephesus is great. Artemis is great. Quiet down, will you? You're causing trouble, and the Romans aren't going to put up with it. So since uh, these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here 
who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. Here's more omissions on Luke's part. The idea of being a temple robber, the idea of robbing temples, where did that come from? Who leveled that charge? It's not a feature of anything prior to that verse in this chapter. But apparently it represents a previous plot. It represents a previous charge, perhaps even a previous trial, a previous attempt that the Jews had made regarding Paul and his ministry. That Paul and his ministry were stealing funds that were supposed to go to, uh, to the Jewish temple. Okay, Luke doesn't give those details, but the reference there grabs our attention. Temple robbers? Where did that accusation come from? All right, so robbers of temples, nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then, if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint, then court is in session. Take it there. This mob in the marketplace is not where we do justice. If there is a legal issue, there is a court to hear it. The courts are in session and proconsuls are available. Another Luke omission. Okay? Proconsuls are available. There's only one proconsul at a time. Unless there's some other kind of chaos happening. Unless um, the city itself is in a bit of a flux. And actually there, there were some issues going on at the time. There had been a proconsul that was assassinated. There had been, uh, there's, there's problems with Rome. Nero and some other family members are, are intruding in, in the politics here. And so perhaps they have competing uh, candidates vying for this new office. Luke omits the details, but we have historical records of what was happening. Then... Um, Bring these charges against one another. Uh, But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. The lawful, and we have ecclesia through all of this too, by the way. The lawful assembly. Indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events. And since there is no real cause for it, and in this connection we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. Rome's going to get upset and we have no good answers. So let's stop this riot now. And so after saying this, he dismissed the assembly. And after the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. When they had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. All right, so that ends his three years in Ephesus. All right? And depending on how you want to outline it, depending on how you want to think about it, if you want to include the three years of Ephesus as a part of the third missionary journey, fine. Uh, if, if it was not a journey because he was in Ephesus for those three years, then start the third missionary journey here and take him through Macedonia and Achaia and Jerusalem and Rome, however you want to outline it. Different people do different things with that. All right, we're going to come back on Wednesday. Now that we have, I think, a, a good handle on what is said in this chapter, there is a ton that's not said in this chapter. Paul gets thrown to the lions. All right, that wasn't in this chapter. There are other uh, afflictions that take place. Multiple plots, multiple arrests, multiple beatings. Paul was in fear for his life on the verge of death, we're told. In fact, we're going to get details that are going to sound so similar to Philippians chapter 1. You're going to say, wait a minute. 
You don't know whether you should live or you should die. You don't know which to ask for, to live as Christ, to die as gain, what's preferable. We start to see that there's a background of Philippians that fits beautifully with the Ephesus uh, experience of Acts 19, only when we can put the details together with the other, uh, the other writings of Paul. Okay? And so we will continue this exercise Wednesday night. Again, Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for this morning, and I thank you for your truth. I pray that you would work in us, Father, to be diligent in these studies, to see what's said and what's not said, to pay attention to details, to uh, to not overlook uh, things, um, Father, uh, because they have they have significance. We uh, we look at these things, and and in some cases we're just tempted to to brush them off or just to say, oh well, you know history, who cares, or boring. But Father, it is, it is so vital as we put these things together to realize that we're not following cleverly devised tales. We're not preaching uh, fairy tales or, or make-believe stories. This is history, true history. This is, uh, this is for our edification, Father. This is the reality of your New Testament that you have written and part of the uh, all things necessary for life and godliness. And I pray, Father, that we would embrace it and have the high regard of Scripture that it seems that uh, almost nobody even has anymore these days. So, Father, um, equip us to give an answer for those with their low views of Scripture. May we defend the inspiration, the um, illumination, the, uh, the integrity of your word. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.